Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the Performance People podcast with me, Georgie. And me, Ben. This pod is all about people who know about performance. We're going to speak to some of the biggest performers in sport, entertainment, business and politics about how they got there and how they stay there. And we'll talk to those closest to them about all the stuff we didn't already know about them. You can listen to performance people in the usual places where you get your podcasts or watch us on YouTube. And don't forget, you can always follow us on our performance people channels. For now, though, here's our latest episode. Joining us on today's Performance People are political and life partners who both played central roles in the New Labour movement. Best known as Tony Blair's chief spin doctor, Alistair Campbell is a writer, strategist and mental health campaigner who has battled depression himself through most of his adult life. And joining Alistair is another political heavyweight, the educational campaigner and journalist Fiona Miller, who also happens to be Alistair's partner for 42 years. It's a candid and wide-ranging conversation between two performance people who have operated right at the heart of number 10. I just started beating myself up physically. Um, I mean, quite badly, really landing blows on myself. I remember having that thought, you can't do this on your own anymore. Stop trying to do it on your own. I always knew from the moment I met you that you'd be the sort of person who'd always be very, very interesting and challenging. But I didn't think I anticipated quite how challenging that could be. What has life been like um, as a, together as a couple? You've been through such tremendous things and such interesting, fascinating parts and, and, and moments in your lives. I mean, how, Fiona, perhaps you first. What, what is life like with Alistair? How has it been this, this, the past however many years that you two have been together? What does that look like from your perspective? Well, I would say very lots of ups and downs and usually quite dramatic ones, to be perfectly honest. I mean, life's never boring with Alistair. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> um, well, I'm a person of few words. That's the truth, isn't it? You have profound highs and profound lows. And you, I always knew from the moment I met you that you'd be the sort of person who'd always be very, very interesting and challenging. But I didn't think I anticipated quite how challenging that could be. <laughs> I think you need to elaborate on that. You can't Why? just say, well, because you're obviously very clever and very <laughs> you commanded the space around you, even when you were in your early twenties, and very ambitious. But I think for most the first half of our lives together, I thought we'd he'd be a journalist. Really, I didn't think we'd get into that whole poli the political thing. Was a bit of a sort of left field, massive dramatic life change for us. And you know, going into number ten, the election in '97, and then coming out the other end of that. So that made a lot. That took me in a direction I never thought our life would go in. Yeah. And but also you presented met, you a met lot of ups and downs, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. But you met Dan in the West Country, if that's right, working in, mm -hmm. in local uh, publications, uh, press, Dan, yeah, Tavistock Times, is that right? And Yeah. Do you know that I area? Get, so, well, I grew up in Cornwall, yeah, so I know, I know it reasonably well. Yeah, we, um, went to, we were in Cornwall for a year, we were in Truro and Falmouth for a year, yeah. 
Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I I, yeah, I grew up on the on Rastrongit Creek, just off the Fal Estuary. So yeah, it's a beautiful part of the world. But I guess what I wanted to ask mm. is, you know, back then working in the West Country, did you ever dream that you would end up, you know, being part of number ten and the government and, you know, just having such a huge impact on on Britain and, and I guess throughout the world? I mean, that's how did that sort of how did those did you talk about those dreams or ambitions or it just sort of did, just happened? Well, when we were, we, Fiona and I met as trainee journalists and so we spent the first few months in a porter cabin learning shorthand and then we went to the Tavistock Times and then we went to the Sunday Independent in Truro. Um, but we, we were part of the Mirror training scheme so we always assumed that that would be two years down in the West Country and then get to London and Fleet Street. I think if I look back to that period, I think we both probably thought we'd, we'd end up as pretty serious high-flying journalists. I probably thought, in my heart of hearts, I probably thought the ultimate ambition for me would be to be editor of the Daily Mirror. Um, Funny enough, before I made the jump into politics, I can remember Neil Kinnock, of all people, who's a very good friend of ours, but I can remember him telling me I should prepare myself to be the next Michael Parkinson. That's what he thought I should go on to be. Um, so I, I think I think I felt I was on the way to a media career, but political, Fiona's from a very political family in a way that I'm not. And I felt myself becoming more and more political through my journalism and then actually became a political journalist. And then I think when Fiona's talk, talking about the ups and downs, I had a very big down in the 80s when I had a, a psychotic breakdown. And bizarrely, there was a lot of politics involved in that. And I think that was the next impulse. I mean, I won't tell you the story, it's too complicated, but there was, I mean, just to give you a snapshot of how political it was, if you said the word right in any context when I was in this psychotic state, I thought you were trying to make me right wing. Um, and red and blue. And red and blue, anything to do with red and blue, I was I, I, I was cracking. It was really literally making me crack up. So there was a lot of politics. And I, and I think eventually um, I, I just decided that politics was where I wanted to be. But I thought even then I thought it would be political journalism. And it was it was when John Smith died in 1994 and Tony Blair asked me to work for him. That was when the, the change came. And as you gathered from... Fiona's earlier reply, um, <laughs> against her will, I uh, I made a very big change in our lives. Alistair, I mean, when when Tony Blair asked you um, to come and work with him, were you worried about your mental health? How much did it concern you that you'd had this episode and and whether that would rear its head again under such pressure? Oh, a lot, a lot. Uh, and, I, and I raised it with him. I actually said no for the first month, really. But I regret, you know, when you say no to something and you think I'm actually mm. doing this for the wrong reasons, I'm doing it because people are telling me to do that. But deep down, I felt I had to do it. But no, I, I definitely was worried. And I, I can remember having this conversation with him when I decided to say yes. And I said, I told him all the things I felt he needed to know about me, including he knew about the breakdown, but he never knew how bad it had been. So I, I told him about, and I can remember we're in this car coming back from Marseille Airport and I was I was driving and looking at him in the mirror and I was telling him about when there was this period of the breakdown where I had bagpipes in this part of the head and Elvis Presley singing over here and a row with Fiona going on in here and a classical orchestra going on here, just utter cacophony of chaos and noise and disturbance. And I can remember Rory, uh, I can remember Tony doing one of his little, Roy's our son's name, sorry about that. That was very Freudian, wasn't it? <laughs> and and Tony, did, Tony did this little sort of, what I call his Bambi look, where he just sort of started to look a bit panicked. <laughs> but then he said, you know, well, I'm not worried about any of that, so what's the problem? Were you one of the people saying to Alistair, please don't take it? Yeah, because my dad had just died and I just literally had a baby like eight weeks before, so I was quite grieving and also had this tiny baby and I probably wasn't in a very good psychological state myself, which is quite unusual for me. Um, and it just, I, I just knew it would be... I knew it would be, you know, full of adrenaline and excitement and stimulating. I also knew it would be a lot of stress and pressure on our lives. I just knew that. And it, you know, I was partly right about both things. It was exciting and enervating, but it was also quite stressful. Yeah. And how did the pressure of that job? Yeah, exactly. How did the pressure of that job, Alistair, sort of manifest itself on a daily basis with somebody who's constantly sort of aware that there's this other thing in the background that might 
that might rise up again at any given time? I think the work, I think back in the day when I had the first breakdown, I think that drink had played a large, I think I covered up a lot of my other stuff with drink. And I think what I did after that, when I stopped drinking, was to cover it up with work. And so the workaholism, which people who I was working with kind of liked and respected, although to be fair to Tony Blair, he's sometimes worried I, I overdid it. But I think that was the way that I dealt with it. So even though it's only when I went back through, when I published my diaries and I went back through them, it's only then that I really realised that it was obvious I'd had quite a lot of quite bad depressive phases, but I just kind of powered my way through them in the main. Um, and the thing about when you're doing something as, as all-consuming as we were doing, it you kind of do have the capacity to do that. But and, and even though it makes you feel terrible and exhausted when you're not doing it, I don't know, I, I know lots of people can't do this and they collapse, but I, I most of the time I was able to keep going. But I think the thing to remember is that Alistair was never diagnosed with anything until 2005, mm. which was two years after we'd left number 10. So it, as time went on, it seemed like the breakdown was a sort of one-off incident. Didn't really feel like he was mentally ill. But looking back now, he's obviously suffered from depression all of his life. And the breakdown was a culmination of a very bad sort of depressive period that was covered up with a lot of alcohol. You're in his life all of the time. So did you see that? Not really, no, because what I know now about mental health, I now realise that there were so many signs there that we ignored because people, you know, we're talking about the sort of 90s into the noughties. People didn't talk about mental health in the way they do now. And I think there was a... If people were high-functioning, I suppose, and holding down very successful jobs, nobody would have thought they could possibly be mentally ill at the same time. Now it's become much more common for famous people and successful people to talk about their mental health and, and ill health. That wasn't the case then. And because Alistair refused to have any psychiatric assistance or help after he left his the hospital where he had his nervous breakdown in Scotland, um, it, life just went back to normal. There was, no di there was no diagnosis, there was no medication, there were no regular psychiatric appointments, there was nothing. It was like the job became the new alcohol, really, in a way, in the form of self-medication. But I see all this now, but it wasn't the case at the time that we realised that he was actually probably unwell for a lot of, for some of it. And I guess back in those days, it was seen as, as a weakness, whereas now it isn't, thankfully, or not as much. I, I don't think, maybe correct me if, if I'm wrong in thinking that, but it seems like there's so much more there was understanding a for there it was a and, stigma. and support yeah. now. Yeah, although I have to say, I, I, I never felt that stigma. When I came back from hospital and I had to take a bit of time off at home and I went to, I went to stay with some friends down in the West Country, um, and then when I went, finally went back to work, I found people were actually really supportive. I mean, the mirror where I went back to was a very hard drinking culture, but nobody tried to get me off the wagon. Uh, I didn't feel I had to hide it from anybody. I felt actually it was quite a good place. And and one of the one of the things I tried to do in my mental health campaigning is try to encourage people to be open because I think they'd be surprised that you're going to get some people who, you know try to exploit it against you but in the main i think people are much much more understanding um so i've i i've i've heard a lot of people who talk about the effect the stigma has had on them but i me personally i've never felt it i think it helped as well i had a brother who had schizophrenia um so we'd you know we'd maybe knew more about mental illness than than a lot of families did and 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 he 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 was able to live not a bad life, given it's such a horrible condition. Um, and I think that helped make me feel more comfortable about my own condition, which was never as bad as what he had. But the truth is you didn't manifest as somebody who's mentally ill. You went back to being a very successful yeah. person. So you mm. don't know if you'd had long periods off, depressed or been on medication. You might have felt differently. And, but it was never acknowledged until finally this other sort of break, different type of breakdown in 2005, after which... It was agreed by Alistair and some of our closest friends it, and I that he needed to get some professional help. And that's when he was probably diagnosed. Yeah. So was there something of an intervention then, then that you've at been that campaigning point? about? Yeah. Yeah, it was, I guess, I, I don't know if an intervention is the right word. It was an intervention that I I finally realised I, <laughs> I had to make myself. We had this, 
we I can't remember what was going on in our lives, but I was I'd been very depressed for quite a long time. I was and I guess I was what you call self-harming. I was I was we, Fiona and I were out walking on the heath and I just started beating myself up physically. Um I mean quite badly, really landing blows on myself and and as I was doing it, I was I could tell that Fiona was scared, I was scared. And I just I can remember thinking I've got to sort this out. I can't do this on my... I remember having that thought, you can't do this on your own anymore. Stop trying to do it on your own. And we phoned this... Uh, Philip Gould, one of my closest friends, mm. he'd been, he knew a psychiatrist that he, he'd been arguing I should try and see for some time, and I went to see him. And from that day on, I, I started seeing him regularly for quite a few years. And um, I still get depression. I was, you know, I was in not a very good state just a few days ago, but... It's a lot better than it's than it's been for a long, long, long time. So, how do you manage it when it happens? And Fiona, how do you how do you manage it as well? Because it's not just about the person that's got it, is it? It's the person that's having to having to you know mm. be be party to that. I think the first thing I say that I never used to be open about it. Um, I probably did play mind games in relation to it, and. If Fiona wanted to take the blame for why it was happening, I was kind of happy with that. Um, I used to think, well, if I'm feeling absolutely shit, I don't see why everybody else shouldn't. And, you know, I think that's something I've learned to try very hard not to do. And the way I've tried to do that is to just be very, very open now. I mean, I, I just, I'm very open. As soon as I start to feel myself on a depressive slide, I, the first thing I do is, is tell Fiona, if the kids are here, I'll tell them. Um... If I if it's if I really feel like I'm struggling, I'll phone David, this guy that I see, um, and then I do. You know, I have lots of different tactics. Um, I do take medication still every day. I I, w I try and work all the time. If I'm even if I don't feel like it, I exercise every day, and you know, it's things like you, I might not feel like you know going out for four hours on the bike, but I'll try and do half an hour on the bike. Or I might feel like not going out in the house, but when the house is empty, I'll walk up and down the stairs for half an hour. I'll just do something. And then I have things like music. I find music incredibly important when I'm not feeling great. I don't read papers. I, I listen to, uh, I read books and I listen to music rather than that. Um, and then, you know, just tr I, I try to retreat into things that I know have helped me through before. Uh, but I think the openness is the most important thing. I really do. I think that has been the key to for both of us, really. Yeah, I think, um, well, it was only when I, Alistair wrote this book about depression and they asked me to write the last chapter about what it was like living with somebody who had depression. And it, as I wrote yeah. it, I mean, thinking in ink is always very good. And as I wrote it, I could feel myself analysing my own feelings and, and realising that for most of our life together, I've I blamed myself for however he was. And he, as he says, he, people who are mentally ill can be quite manipulative. He was quite happy to make me feel guilty. Um, so once I'd realised that I was wrong, you know, it wasn't. Like, I may have been doing things that exacerbated the situation, but fundamentally, it wasn't my fault. Life it became a lot easier. And actually, then I started this small sort of support group with people who contacted me after they read the book, and we meet every couple of weeks to talk online. They've all got depressive partners. It's so interesting, some of the common characteristics that have come out from these various different people. Um, and, and guilt and blame is a big, big part of it. You know, it's very, very common for people who live with somebody who's mentally ill to feel that it's their fault because they're usually the cat that gets kicked. And you think, if this yeah. person I live with and I love very much is very unhappy, it must be something that I'm doing that's wrong. And actually, it's by and large, that isn't the case. It's something else that's going on and you need to try and understand that. It's like being a detective. You need to try and understand what's going on in their head and it's really very difficult to understand if you haven't suffered from depression what it is like for somebody who does have it. And what about the kids and protecting them from this or, or in fact not, or being really open about it with them and, and then how it affects their lives? How, how have you sort of managed that over the years? Because I mean, we've got two young children, but I can imagine that as they get older, you know, it's, it's difficult to keep things that are, you know, this serious to sort of talk about and, and walk through and everything else with them from them. And, and should you, in fact, should you actually just be very open about it all? Well, when well, I, I think the, well, the important thing is, as I say, it wasn't diagnosed in their early lives. They probably knew that they were, their dad was quite difficult and you know the way he led his life was quite challenging in some ways, as well as being wonderful, fun and a great father. And he was wonderful, fun and a great father. 
but they didn't know until he was until they were quite old that he was a depressive. But um, when when I started seeing the psychiatrist, um, I actually sat them down one by one. So that would have been two thousand and five. So Rory was oh then in his teens, eighteen or something. Yeah, yeah and Great Great Grace was the only one who was still technically, I guess, a child. But I remember sitting down with each of them. And just say, look, I'm going to see this guy. I've spent my whole life trying to wrestle with this stuff. I've tried to do it on my own. I've realised I need help. And I'm going to see him, but don't worry about it. And actually, he, I think one of the most important things that David, the psychiatrist, did at a certain point, he said he wanted to meet Fiona, which he did. And that we had some pretty harsh sessions together. Um, and then he wanted to see the kids as well. And I think the main reason from their perspective that he wanted to do that was to emphasise this point that they should never think it's their fault. Uh, and in fact, that they are the kids. The kids, in particular, a while back. Now I'd say it's Fiona that's the biggest kind of the person who can pull me out of it best. But it used to be the children. But I felt bad about that because I felt I was using them. Mm. Um, I, I only felt comfortable in their company when I was when I was in a depressive state because whether it was because I was forcing myself to be a bit different, I don't know. But. Um, and Grace, our daughter, she's very, very in my face about it in a good way. She's like, you know, what can I do? And if it's nothing, at least tell me it's nothing. But I want to know. And why is it happening? And she's she's not aggressive, but she's she's kind of there in my face. Whereas the boys are just a little bit more, you know, leave me to it. They know I've been through it before and that I'll get through it again. I remember you spoke about, um, I think you were in Scotland and you were talking about someone in the crowd asked you a question that you found really difficult to deal with because it was about asking you when you were, I think it was you going back to politics or, or, or putting into action some of the things that you were talking about and that weight of expectation bearing down. Is that the sort of thing that triggers mm. this? Is that the sort of thing that makes you think, oh, I've got this insurmountable amount of stuff to deal with. How am I ever going to get there or get through any of it or work it through in my mind? Well, that was a really interesting one because most of my depressions they come on slowly and I can sort of feel them coming on. But that literally was an instant thing, wasn't no, it? No, I don't think, I think you were, you were getting quite sort of... Agitated. Agitated yeah, on the maybe, way up to Scotland. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But it was definitely a tipping point. And the guy, it was at a book festival and the guy asked this question. He said, he mentioned the podcast. He said, I listened to your podcast with Roy Stewart. I think it's great what you're trying to do, bring people together from different tribes, et cetera, et cetera. But you've got to take it further. You have a responsibility and a duty to start a new party and to sort this whole mess that we're in out. And it, I just, as he said it, I could feel myself collapsing inside because I thought, well, I can't do it. I can't, I don't, I don't feel I've got it in me to do that on my own. Um, and so, yeah, and, and funny enough, one of the things that I talk a lot about with my with David, the psychiatrist, he he defines my central problem as a never ending conflict between self and service, between mm. wanting a nice life, looking after myself, you know, really doing things that I want to do, but at the same time, kind of feeling an exaggerated sense of responsibility about the state of the world. And I sometimes, when I'm in a bad way, when the depression and the anxiety are both kicking in, I can literally lie in bed and I can develop a mental process where I become, at the end of it, single-handedly to blame for, cli for climate crisis, you know. I could just... And I know it's irrational, but when, you, when you're feeling like that, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible feeling. So that definitely triggered something in me and I wasn't very... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Good for a while after us. All right. Well, we don't, I mean, we don't want to drive you back into deepest, darkest depression, but we did want to touch on a couple <laughs> of those key issues. Because <laughs> I, as I said earlier, I'm a massive, massive... Massive fan of, of the podcast, yours and Rory's. I think it's brilliant. I love it. But that point you made, that question that you had about, you know, this polarization in politics and how, you know, what's the way forward? I, it seems like it's incredibly hard to answer that question about how can you, why can't you, for example, start a third party, a new party that actually finds a middle ground there that, you know, I think most people perhaps would say, with a bit of common sense would say it needs to needs this you know this far right in the Tory party far left in the Labour party isn't working it's not going to be the pathway forwards how what is the answer to that <sighs> I mean change of electoral system yeah see, the, 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 the answer we've got about, we've got about <laughs> yeah. an hour got another yeah. half well, an hour we'll do it with our first past the post can't <laughs> yeah. we the, 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 but the answer oh. people often say look Macron did it in France okay but Macron did it in France because they have a presidential system and he realized that if he went for it and became president, he could break the mold from that perspective. And he did it. And, you know, it's amazing what he achieved. But our system with it's a parliamentary democracy, we vote for candidates from parties. And then the, 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 the party that can form a majority, that is, that is where the prime minister comes from. It's a totally different system. And I guess my worry speaking as a kind of tribally, historically Labour person, is that even though I've thought a lot about whether, I, you know, I agree with your basic analysis, the Tory party just become this horrible right-wing rump, but they've got a very strong base. The Labour party, particularly under Corbyn, went way far too to the left. Uh, the Liberal Democrats have kind of vanished because, you know, Clegg's, what happened when they were in government, they just lost that kind of sense of who they are and so they've been in trouble. Scotland, meanwhile, is being completely dominated by the SNP. I just worry that if we did kind of create some sort of new party, the net beneficiary in our system is going to be the Tory party again. Um, so the system, you know, we have to believe enough, all of us, in the long term, an understanding that unless we vote for parties that genuinely want to change the system, we're going to get this again and again and again and again. It's right, isn't it? Mm. How does anybody get anything done? When you look at like the recent change of leaderships, you look at the proclamation of the king and there's sort of uh, six prime ministers stood in front of him there, former prime ministers. And you think, how do we ever get anything done? They, there's this ever-changing sort of circus of whatever it may be. Um, but it just feels like, it feels like there's not enough time to get things done properly. And we talk about climate change and people who obviously campaign for that, wanting to make you know, a decent, decent impact. But how, how does actually anything get done in a, in a situation where you're constantly changing these governments and people aren't sticking at jobs for longer than five minutes? Well, funny enough, one of the questions on the podcast today was from somebody, I don't know if you know this, but um, a guy who said that there had been nine secretaries of state for education mm. in the last 12 years. Mm. Uh, exactly. Now, there's no way you can deliver an effective education policy if, you, if you're lasting there an average of, you know, a year and a Two bit. Years, yeah, I mean, it's hopeless. So, I mean, the only thing is you say things can't get done, but things will get done. I mean, you know, Brexit was done. Um, and it was done in part because, and Ben, thank you for all the support during the uh, during the various campaigns. The, but the fact much. is, it was done. 
I know it didn't, but, you know, there we go. We, we lost. They're about to bring back, you know, get rid of the cap on bankers' bonuses. That's doing something. It can be that I would think is the wrong thing. They're, they're doing, they're going to do loads of stuff. The question is, <clears throat> is it the right stuff for the country? And if the country mm. thinks it's not, how does the country get a change? Now, in our system, the only change currently can be the Labour Party. But if the Labour Party isn't, you know, connecting with people in the way that it needs to, then we're just, we're just going to carry on with this kind of, as Ben says, a bit of a quagmire and you'll get change and you'll get churn. I, I've got enough confidence that I'm actually writing a book at the moment called But What Can I Do? And it's trying to help people kind of make sense of this. And, and the answer basically is we all have to do what we think we can do. But I think the change will come because I, I, I think where we are now is utterly untenable. And funny enough, I think that having gone through that extraordinary period between the death and the funeral of the Queen, where you had a sense of, the country actually being quite good at doing something mm. and that, you know, particularly the funeral itself and that day. And I think very quickly we're going to get into a sense mm. of, well, if we can do that, why can't we do this? And why can't we do that? And why can't we run the health service properly? Why are the schools not properly funded? I think it will switch. And look, if it doesn't, we're absolutely knackered and, and you know, <laughs> we might as well all go home. But I, I think it will switch. I really do. I really, I really hope you're right. Oh, the other thing is outlet. you could end up with seeing the breakup of the United Kingdom. I mean, that is possible. And that, you know, I think that might force some very radical thinking if you end up just being England on its own. Mm. Yeah. I, th I think the, the possibility of a, of a border pole in Ireland mm. and, and the North, it'll be very messy, it'll be very difficult, it'll be very fraught, but I can see that happening before Scotland going independent. Um, you, you, you mentioned uh, before, Ben, the, the, the podcast chat we had with Mark Drakeford, and he was very, I thought he was very interesting on if Scotland did go independent, that would really have an impact upon thinking in Wales. So that is a possibility, and, and it's a real one. And I think we're kidding ourselves if the fact that there was this extraordinary kind of outpouring of support mm. for the Queen, that that somehow means that the country, the United Kingdom, is is coming back together again. I'm I'm not sure that's that's true. On the subject then of King Charles the Third, um, what is the what is the task for him moving forward? I mean, he has to be apolitical now, which he hasn't been in the past, and we've known a lot about his thoughts prior prior to this. Um, what what if you were advising him? What would your advice be to him in the in the sort of days and months and weeks that follow? I look. I, I did an interview with Prince William a few years ago for GQ magazine, and I asked him. George was just a little child at the time, so I said, "Look, there's only really three people in the country who can sort of genuinely sit around and say to themselves, you know, I either am in the case of the Queen, or I might be one day quite soon the monarch." Okay, there's only three of you. I said, "Do you ever sit around, just the three of you, chatting about the job and what it entails and how differently you might do it?" And William said, no, we've never, ever done that, which I was genuinely surprised by. He then said, the truth is you have to work it out for yourself. You have to work out how you're going to do it. And what that says to me is I, I don't think Charles necessarily will become that different. Um, there's a difference between being political and being engaged in political events and debate. And I hope he does carry on saying things that, uh, I mean, what the Queen was very good at is never being defined as as party political. Um, and I don't think Charles, I remember there was, one, there was once when we felt Charles was getting a bit too close, we felt defending the so-called forces of conservatism. Mm. But I think he's actually been quite radical on some issues. And I think it'd be a shame if he just sort of forgot that. My advice would be to show, not tell. Mm. And they're very good at that. They're very good at that. I think show, not tell is the way. Don't have raging headlines saying Charles rants at Liz Truss lifting the ban on fracking. But, you know, <laughs> out and about on visits, you could, you could communicate an awful lot. Yeah, there was a great article about the Queen's clothes and how she used what she was wearing to... So, like, when Trump came, she wore this brooch that had been given to her by the Obamas. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, when she went to Ireland, she had a big shamrock on her collar without... She didn't have to say anything, but... 
I think there's and she loved wearing it. those bright colours, didn't she? Because she wanted always to be able to be mm. picked out in a crowd, however garish yeah. the colours were. Mm. You could always pick her out in a mm. crowd. Did you did you ever mm. have that Fiona with Sherry Blair? Because you know you you, you four were the original Fab Four, I guess, way back when. Um, Well, I think... um, I think the Beatles might argue about that. I do think it's always very important to remember if you're in number 10 that you aren't the head of state. I mean, the thing is, there's a a lot of the public get very muddled up and think that the sort of first... The Prime Minister's wife is the First Lady. Um, But, you know, that isn't the case. And and you also find out very quickly, if you do something wrong there, that that you're not the head of state because I think the monarchy are forgiven a lot of things that Prime Ministers aren't. Uh, so I think it's a slightly different role, but it's certainly true that I felt with her, she there was a lot she could do without actually giving interviews or making things mm. explicit, just by the, her actions and the causes that she took t- took up and the way she demonstrated that she supported. And I think the new Princess of Wales does that extremely mm. well. She's taken, she's chosen specifically a few very specific causes, sort of close to her heart, and she's made herself a bit of an expert in them. She doesn't give many mm. speeches or write articles, but you know everybody knows what she thinks about those things and and what she supports. And I do think whatever you may feel about the monarchy, it does have an influence on the way the public think about those issues. So early childhood, which is one of her things, which I'm very interested in too. You know, I think she'll do a lot of good in that area, even though you know she's not professionally trained in it. Um, well, one, one so of the, it can make a big difference. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I think you know on the mental health campaigning front. I mean, mm. William and Harry and Kate have been brilliant. Yeah, um, they really have their heads together campaign. I think it's I'm actually quite sad at the kind of the seeming rift and Harry going off because I think they were an amazing team mm. in terms of how they campaigned on that. And if William, you know, if and when William becomes king, I'd be I'd be really upset if he decided, you know, what I won't be but campaigning anymore. He's done a lot with anymore. young men and sports and mental yeah. health, hasn't he? And that's yeah. been impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So what about Meghan and Harry? I mean, everyone watches this with, you know, crikey. I mean, most of us are sort of in disbelief at the next thing that sort of occurs in the media. I mean, Alistair, you know more than anybody that relationship with the media. I mean, what what do you think is really going on there? What is, what is happening here? Is it is it just that, you know, they want to go away and do their own thing? It feels very much like it's 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 very much in public view. It's not as private as they as they suggested it might be. I mean, the honest answer is I don't know. Um, and I think one of the reasons that the Queen... My favourite line about the Queen was Tina Brown wrote this wonderful piece in the New York Times and she said, we're so going to miss not knowing what she thinks. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was absolutely brilliant. So we actually don't know a lot of this stuff. And so these conventional wisdoms form. Um, and so, on the one hand, you can read and hear people saying that Meghan's an absolute sort of out for the main chance, all about herself, and she's wrecked, she's got Harry under her thumb, and it's, you can hear all that. On the other hand, and this is kind of, I think, where I am, I look at both William and Harry, and I think there are two blokes who were born into the public eye who, deep in their hearts, believe that their mother, whom they loved, was killed in part because of this insatiable desire of the media to know about her and to follow her and so forth. They believe that. And I think there's a part of Harry that does see that same kind of dynamic going on with Meghan. I think there is an element of racism attached to it. I think there is definitely an element of misogyny attached to it. Um, And then there's also the stuff going on that we don't know about, which is I don't know what the genuine story is between what's happened between him and William and... So, But surely, I mean, the thing is, if you were advising them, I'm sure you would say, look, you've got to decide what you want to do. Do you want to be a royal? If you don't want to be a royal, stop kind of pretending to be a royal and stop giving in to, to stop talking about them all the time. I mean, I think that I think they need to kind of shut that side of it down and get on with whatever good works they can do. But not kind of looks to me like they kind of don't want to be royal, but they want to cash in on their royal status by hmm. earning money out of it. And I think that's not a great look for them. I think a lot of people do see it like that. I mean, it's, uh, and, and you know, that because then you get accused of all these other things, like you said, of being racist or misogynistic. But I mean, the bottom line is you can't sort of stand there and wipe a tear away and then give an interview the next day saying, oh, they made my life a misery. <laughs> my life a misery. It just looked bad. Yeah, but he was, he, you know, Harry was, that was his grandmother who was being, you know, laid to I'm rest. I'm talking about and, her, not him. No, I know. But, and, he, and, he's, and she's his wife. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, yeah, I think, and also I think there's an element of they're very privileged, and it's not, 
sort of feels a bit uneasy to me to have people who've got so much wealth and you know, privilege and power to be moaning constantly about how awful their lives are when there are people whose lives are really bloody awful and they're the ones we should be worrying about, really. Um, I like what your mum said, Fiona, when she said um, women's li- it's, there's no such thing as women's lib. There's just women doing yeah, two jobs. just do two jobs. <laughs> but, but it, it, but it <laughs> is a perpetual juggle. That was before I even had kids or anything. But yeah. have you ever found a solution? Because yeah, I, feel... I, I'm still, I'm still as, as I suspect most women that also work are, are just constantly struggling to find that ju- making that juggle work. I don't, I don't know what the You've answer is. You've got to get is. them I don't... to do more. Really, You've got to get them how? to do more. Men have to take share the paternity, mater- the pater- the parental leave. Start from a very early stage doing the things that become the woman's responsibility by default. And then once you've got into that groove, it's very hard to get out of it again. And I noticed that Ben just did two of the most defensive body language things. <laughs> he tapped his nose and then he scratched the back of his neck. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. What? Alistair, what Alistair, what, what do you and do? I'm folding my arms. I can change when nappies I, when I... <laughs> well, the rest of them. What are talking about? Yeah, yeah, everybody One or two. a nappy. Everybody changes a nappy, but it's all the other stuff that goes into the domestic, the sort of domestic democracy, I call it. You know, are you really sharing all the responsibilities? And I think one of the problems with the way parental leave is geared at the moment, and I went, you know, I gave up my, I went back to work very quickly after our first child was born because that was the law then. And then I gave the job up after about nine months and started working from home. And from that point on, it was that I was on the mummy track, which was going that way, and Alistair was going that way. And it was quite hard mm. for the mm. two to meet. It, it, I, there was a guy who gave a wonderful lecture once called the Alarednik uh, syndrome, which is Cinderella in reverse. So you start off as a princess <laughs> and you become Cinderella. And that's what happens. And then it's you're true. the one that does it's the washing, very frustrating. the ironing, the bin yeah. bags, the shopping. The, it's not the nice, fun stuff with the kids. It's all the other stuff. Do you Georgia, know what I, I also really think it is? confess, I, I am <laughs> terrible. I am terrible, I confess. But it's also it's also the thinking time, like having to think through. So this weekend, sort of catering yeah. for a bunch of people, it's like, who's going to think through what we need? Then who's going to go and get it? Then who's going to make it? Then who's going to mm. clear it up? Then who's going to mm. do this and that and the other? And and it kind of, it sort of ends up becoming a default setting, which is even more frustrating. And I don't know why I go along with that, but I do. What are you shaking your head for? Because you love him. No, I just said patch. But I feel him. now. So, well, who's going to who's going to think about all this stuff? Well, we could share that. Ben puts the bins out, and then he wants a medal for it. That's the problem. <laughs> ben, you're letting the side down. It's don't put the bins out. No, no, no. It's called habits. Not, I'm not, just I'm you not, get into sort of habits, don't you? I know. We need to learn how to change no, it I'm up. I'm going to defend myself a little bit here. That's you're making it sound a lot way, way worse than it actually is. Yeah, but also um, listen, let, listen, George. Let me just let me just tell you something. Let me just tell you something. You are sitting next to somebody who has achieved things that no other human being has done. That's special. You're not helping, Alistair. Yeah, That's special. Well, Alistair. Thanks. <laughs> and, and, and Fiona, likewise, is sitting you? next to... Oops, sorry. Did you know who's a pin-up <laughs> idol that millions of women want to be with? I yeah. get told it every day how lucky I am. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But I think, seriously, I, I mean, I know we've go got to a certain point in our lives when I kind of feel I'd quite like to retire. Not retire. I won't stop doing anything, but just sort of take it easier you know have a and I keep saying to us you don't know what it's like to have done two jobs for the past 30 years you've only had to do Mm. your one thing you've done it very well but it is exhausting having that parallel train of thought always having to go on in your head isn't it Mm. yeah but especially if you're Alistair and you're constantly strategizing about how to save the planet which he is obviously I know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have no that massive restlessness, that, don't you? It's a real restlessness. You mm. have that restlessness. I mean, you can never go on holiday with you. It's an absolute oh, I nightmare. Going on I mean, it's not it. an enjoyable experience to go on holiday <laughs> with Ben. It isn't. It's not. It's no, no fun for anyone. <laughs> Alice's worst depressions always happen on holiday, and I think that's why because the sort of the yep. the scaffolding that keeps him going, which is all his stuff and busyness all disappears just and then there's nothing else left mm. and it's scary for him mm. yeah is that how you see it alistair you need the structure uh i don't know if i need structure I, I need i need to be doing stuff and and it's true that i mean I, I again i only saw this pattern when i was going through the diaries it was just amazing how often four or five days into a holiday I would have an absolute crash. And I think, again, it's this clash of expectations. You, you've built yourself up in your mind, right? I'm good. I've got to spend time with Fiona and the kids. I've got to be 
in a different mode. And I get there and the pressure of work or the pressures I put on myself means that I don't go into a different mode. And then the clash between the expectation of what you're meant to be and what and who you actually are then riddles you with guilt and angst and all that stuff. And before you know it, you're a, you know, I've crashed. Um, and yeah, I can, you know, one of the worst ever was when, uh, I, and to this day, I can't really know what was going on, but on holiday in this house in France, and I'd gone and thought I'd locked myself in the bathroom because I just couldn't stop crying. And one of our sons came in and said, what's wrong? And I said, I haven't got a clue. And Holidays was, are terrible things, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I'm with Ben. I'm with Ben. Just keep working. It's funny, though, isn't it? Because, yeah, but an athlete is not just... Well, oh, Fiona's going to hate me for this. An athlete is not dissimilar to what Alistair is describing. You, There is always a... Ma well, most athletes have this crash after retiring from whatever sport they may do because of that routine. They're so used to having that routine mm. built in, isn't it, of what they do in their day. You suddenly take that away and it's like, who are you? You don't know who you are anymore. I mean, your routine has been mm. built into mm. you from such an early age, hasn't it, as an athlete, mm. though? You know, it could just be, it could all just fall over when that when that comes to an end. Isn't, yeah. that, isn't that fair? Yeah, I think so. But I, I think Alistair said, you know, you'd want to be doing something, you know, sitting on a beach. You're lucky with sailing. Like you can just not, keep sailing You're not forever. achieving anything. It's terrible. <laughs> just keep sending him out to sail. Sport's great for therapy, isn't it, Alistair? Isn't that a really, a, a great way to relax for you? Do you find that that's a, sort of a way to sort of get yeah, away not, from all of it? supporting um, Burnley. On the well, thought. yes, of course it is. They have ups yeah. and downs like anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Uh, oh yeah, uh, I mean, f the f for sport doing it, I do something sporting every day. I'm about at four fifteen. I'm seeing my boxing guy. He's coming around to hit a few pads. Um, but yeah, but Burnley. John I think <laughs> no, John. I, I don't quite have the sharpness of the jab <laughs> that John has. But I think that. No, Burnley's been Burnley's much more to me than a football team. It's something quite deep. My sister, who's a, a Christian, she she basically thinks that Burnley is to me what God is to her, which is not it's not quite the same, but it's it sometimes feels like that. Um, but I do. It's, it's funny though. Recent years, I've become less obsessed with sport. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, maybe since the boys have moved out, um, I find myself watching less sport now than I used to. Um, but I still think that, you know, that is where I have had some of the great highs and lows in my life have been through following a football club. I love it. And physically, actually, like you say, you're doing your boxing later. That really helps, doesn't it, with the endorphins and everything else. If you can do that, you know, a few times a week, that does help put you in the right place, doesn't it, in the right headspace? I think so. And I think also just I just like feeling fit. I like, uh, you know... I've got, look, I've, I'm coming from a family of four kids. Both my brothers died age 62. Um, and, you know, I'm now 65. And uh, I, Donald, he had schizophrenia and the medication was a problem, et cetera. But I had another brother who just, he just never took care of himself. He never looked after himself physically. And, you know, I think it's important that we, particularly with a government that I don't think is committed to a proper running of the health service and doesn't understand mental health, uh, I'm afraid there's an awful lot that we have to do for ourselves. And, Keeping physically fit is definitely part of that. And that's, yeah. again, where, I mean, Fiona has been an amazing help because she's, you know, we eat well. Um, I've, I've, I've stopped drinking again. Uh, so, you know, it just, I think looking after yourself physically is just is fundamental to mental health. Yeah. Fiona, what do you do? I mean, I'm not sure if you share this passion for Burnley well, or I've not. I've always but been what, a swimmer. What, what do you do? Swimming. Great. Yeah, I've always been a swimmer. That's my main addiction. Um, and now cold water swimming. I've done lot, done normal temperature swimming for about 40 years and I've decided to present myself with a new challenge and do it in very cold water through the winter. Yeah. You are yeah, we're both, we're both cold woman water than I. Junkies. Yeah, but it is, I, I mean, it's good. You need a new challenge later in life and I've really enjoyed that one. Yeah. So, yeah. That's it's a good thing. time actually to ask yeah. you because we're about, we're about to draw it to a close. Good time to ask you performance tip. So if um, an everyday person like you know myself is saying to you guys, what can I do to perform better every day? What what would it be? What would your little nugget be to tell me what to do every day, which would mean I'd perform better in life? I mean, Fiona, why didn't you go first? Well, I, I honestly think the cold swimming is quite an amazing <laughs> psychological <laughs> boost to start the day with. I do, and I, I speak as somebody who's swam in 
normal indoor pools for most of my life but it does certainly sharpen up the start of the day and and then I do a lot of yoga as well and I, I've only started that last year and I've really got into that in the lockdown when they shut down the swimming pools and I found now most days I can't function unless I do at least 20 minutes of yoga every day for some reason so those two things for me are the kind of I, I'm a vegetarian as well I don't drink very much but those two things for me are at the moment my sort of my sort of touchstones for keeping well what I would do, George, is I would ask you to come around here and look at the wall behind my laptop where you will see some great words of wisdom from lots of different people. Funny enough, one of them, Fiona's already quoted, which is Think in Ink, Marilyn Monroe. I bet you didn't know Marilyn Monroe said that. Um, Everything is impossible till you make it happen. Nelson Mandela, you can have that one. If there's nobody in your way, you're not going anywhere. Bobby Kennedy. Um, what about the by by failing to prepare, you are yeah. preparing to fail. Benjamin Franklin. Um, What's the one about being? Let the racket do oh, the talking. John can... McEnroe. <laughs> <laughs> you can have that one. It's amazing what you. It's amazing what. Yeah, but that doesn't apply to me. It's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. Mm, I like that. Uh, what about this one, Ted Lasso? It's never the wrong time to do the right thing. I love Ted Lasso. <laughs> love it. Guilty pleasure. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, yeah, well, he's guys. Up, he's up there on my, on my, on my wall of fame. <laughs> oh, you'll Great like change. this one, Ben. You're, ben will like this one. Ben will like this one. Waiting for your opponent to fail is never a strategy. Gary Kasparov. Mm. Mm. That's good. Could be waiting a long time. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need a bigger boat we need a bigger boat (laughs) right lovely brilliant thanks guys thank you so much for coming on really appreciate it yeah it's wonderful no at all it's lovely to see you both take care bye Bye. Bye. we'll see you soon lots of love yeah so another fascinating conversation now I, I mean really fortunate to get that insight on number 10 from Fiona and Alistair and then, of course, Alistair's you know, battled with depression. I like the fact that Alistair has a quote wall behind him, which he obviously yep. draws inspiration from when he's writing his articles and penning his books. And I love that quote from Marilyn Monroe. I never I never have heard that one before of thinking ink. Yeah, I mean, you can absolutely imagine that. That is a, you know, it's a very cathartic process writing and, and, and writing things through and thoughts through. And I suppose with mental health and depression and issues around that, it really probably does help to sit down and think in ink. So I like that a lot. Um, thank you for watching and or listening. We are Ben and George Ainsley and this has been Performance People. And remember, from what we've learned today, openness, I suppose, openness and thinking in ink is the way forward. So, uh, yeah, that would be our takeaway. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.